Hello and welcome to the Limpit Podcast. I'm Sonali Silva and today I'm talking to Lipid Specialist Associate Professor David Sullivan, Genetic Counselor Catherine Spinks and Paediatric Cardiologist Dr Ari Horton about the latest developments in familial hypercholesterolemia. Several new developments in the specialty have prompted updated guidance from the FH Australia Network, one of which is that genetic testing for FH is now publicly funded on the MBS. It's a major development that could see increasing numbers of individuals identified with the condition and means that early detection and intervention is now a central feature of the guidelines. Ari, perhaps I can start with you here. As a paediatric cardiologist, what's usually happening in these young patients' lives at the time the condition is picked up and at the point that you come into their lives? So often the first time I meet a child is at a time of... Uh, great trauma and sadness. Often it's around the time of a loss of a close family member. Um, And whether that be a mother or father who's passed away from a a heart attack at a young age, and then often they're brought by their family members or or the other parent um, to see the cardiologist for the first time. And so when I'm meeting a child for the first time, Many times it's not only about diagnosis of a lipid disorder or, in this case, familial hypercholesterolemia. Often it's also about caring for the child as a whole and counselling them through the grief process as well as um, counselling them through that process of diagnosis of a family um, uh, heart condition and then um, talking to them about starting treatment early so that they can prevent that same heart disease from happening for them in their future. So it's a time of um, great sadness, but also great opportunity to improve their life. Um, Because, you know, although the potential onset is mainly in young adulthood and adulthood, the time for intervention is in childhood. So if you're intervening in a 25-year-old, then potentially our window is already too late and they've already got the buildup of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, um, which will then put them at increased risk in their 30s and 40s. Whereas if we have diagnosis between age 5 and 10 and then early commencement of treatment in those that are affected or at risk, that is how we are going to have an impact and not lose fathers and mothers um, uh, of children in their early 30s to massive heart attacks and death. And Ari, just how common is the condition in Australia? Previous data would suggest about 1 in 500 But uh, this update refers to new epidemiological data suggesting the condition is actually more common than previously thought. The community needs to fight for increased recognition so that people are more aware of just how common this is. You know, we've got one in 250 people, even up to one in 200 people um, in the community carry um, uh, a gene which puts them at risk of FH. It's exceedingly common um, and people aren't aware of how common it is. You know, um, this is, we're talking about the level of, you know, 
one in every 250 people standing next to you has this condition or carries a, um, uh, carries a gene change that puts their child at risk of this condition. So that's not rare. Mm, so, David, I'd like to turn to you here. The updated guidance, of course, coincides with the new MBS item number for genetic testing in FH. I know you've said that this move signals the shift into the era of genetic medicine. How is this test best used? I think... Familial hypercholesterolemia is an excellent condition to serve as a prototype for uh, our entry into the era of precision medicine. It's a condition which does have a genetic under, underpinning and which, um, for which we have, uh, I think, readily available treatments with a large impact on life expectancy. And because of those factors, it avoids some of the tricky questions that often arise when dealing with genetic conditions. Uh, first of all, uh, yes, uh, the genetic testing is available with MBS criteria based on uh, an elevated LDL cholesterol level, either greater than 6.5 millimoles per litre, or alternatively, uh, a Dutch lipid clinic score of greater than uh, six points. And that's appropriate in terms of uh, the concept of a pretest probability. A test is uh, more specific if it's uh, uh, dealt with in, in a population with uh, a high pretest probability. Uh, we do want this test to be used efficiently because, in some ways, it will be the yardstick by which uh, investment in genetic testing for the community is going to be judged. And um, the application of the results, I think, uh, is at two levels. First of all, there is the more complex issue of, of finding a cause for elevated cholesterol in a, uh, an otherwise um, uninvestigated patient, the so-called index case patient. That's a more complex laboratory process, uh, one which costs more money and uh, one in which um, uh, the criteria for... Um, selecting cases is most stringently applied. Uh, usually, and currently at the moment, uh, there is a concept that that will be guided by a specialist opinion in conjunction with primary care physicians. However, once a variant has been noted in a family, the chances of that variant affecting uh, any member of each generation is around about 50%. Uh, it is appropriate to consider the use of confirmatory testing, uh, and uh, that is at the discretion of the primary care physician. And David, what are some examples of uh, situations where it would be inappropriate to order such tests? Uh, sometimes people do use total cholesterol to guide the, the concept of familial hypercholesterolemia. Many patients with very high cholesterol levels also have massively increased triglyceride levels. That is a clinical picture which has nothing to do with familial hypercholesterolemia, the testing and the use of uh, cholesterol-lowering treatments in those situations is not appropriate. The second thing is that uh, there have been stages at which familial hypercholesterolemia has been the main gateway to um, obtaining treatments which might be used in statin intolerance, et cetera, et cetera. That is no longer the case. Uh, there is a, now a, a broader approach which just tries to identify high risk in, 
in patients and uh, justify such treatment in, in those situations. Therefore, reaching a diagnosis of familial hypercholesterolemia is not a necessity as people explore the uh, appropriateness or otherwise of some of the more expensive treatments like PCSK9 in here. Thanks, David. Catherine, I'll just turn to you here. You're a genetic counsellor. Could you tell us a bit more about what's involved in the individual selection of patients for genetic testing? So I think the genetic test, as David said, um, in the first person in the family, so the families, you know, no one has received a formal diagnosis yet. In the first person, the diagnostic test that sequences at least three genes, um, it's I guess it's not the test that you do to rule out a diagnosis. So as David said, if you've got very high cholesterol and there's a mix of triglycerides and LDL, you really want to, um, I guess, clarify the, the triglyceride picture first um, and exclude secondary causes of high cholesterol because the genetic test, if it does come back, no variants are found, it's not actually going to exclude the diagnosis of FH. So that investigation has to be clinical first before thinking about genetic testing. Because ultimately, the main benefit of the genetic test um, is usually more for the family members than that first index patient. Because you've got that index patient um, that's being investigated and has a, a clinical diagnosis of FH. Hopefully, they're seeing the right people and they're um, getting the attention that they need to lower their cholesterol with um, various diet and uh, medication interventions. And then the genetic test really comes into its own, the genetic result really comes into its own for family members. So the workup for the first person is, you know, excluding secondary causes of cholesterol and um, doing the Dutch score. But for family members, um, we hope the, the genetic test makes the diagnosis a lot easier. So if you have that genetic variant, there's a 50-50 chance you've inherited that genetic variant if you're a brother or sister or child. Um, and instead of going through the process of excluding secondary causes and doing a Dutch lipid score, you don't want to do a Dutch lipid score in family members. You want to look at the LDL cholesterol and you want to um, do that genetic test if you can, if you do have that variant in the family. And it makes things a lot simpler to say yes or no, this person does or does not have FH. Therefore, if they do have FH, they can get started on managing their risk, lowering their cholesterol, um, quitting smoking, all of those important things. Um, if they don't inherit FH, um, they can be reassured that they don't have that greatly increased lifelong, lifelong risk of heart disease. Um, and they also can't pass it on if they don't inherit it themselves. So um, that's also a huge benefit I find personally talking to people and when they get the negative result they say phew I don't have it and now my kids don't have to worry about getting screened either. Thanks Catherine and as more patients gain access to genetic testing for FH what should clinicians uh, think about when they're talking to patients about undertaking these tests? David mentioned already that FH is a really um, great example of a condition that's very treatable um, and that's different to a lot of other genetic conditions um, that we do genetic testing for. And that really changes the dynamic of the consent process. It's, um, it's, it's another medical test to use that will actually inform treatment for a patient. So I guess if, if you've got the first, the index case, um, the reason you're thinking about genetic testing in them is that you already know that they have high cholesterol and if you're thinking FH, you probably already know that they have a family history of either, either premature heart disease 
diabetes or high cholesterol. So you can already act on that without doing a genetic test. And then adding a genetic test to that context for that patient, um, I guess, you know, stopping to think about things like insurance, things like life insurance, well, the patient already knows that they have high cholesterol and they're already being investigated for a clinical diagnosis of FH. So adding another medical test, the genetic test, to confirm that clinical diagnosis um, is unlikely to change um, that, uh, I guess, those, those worries about insurance or, or revealing unknown diagnoses per se. You're not predicting someone's um, chance of future disease that they don't currently have. Um, and I guess in the cascade testing realm, the consent is a little bit different because if you're meeting a young person that's never had a blood test, um, they might not know if they have FH. But I guess we're universally recommending a cholesterol test, which will reveal the diagnosis in most people anyway. So adding that genetic test to confirm or to go alongside the cholesterol test um, doesn't raise too many additional ethical considerations in terms of consent. Um, occasionally there's some discordance. Someone might have a high cholesterol and then have a negative cascade gene test, or in other cases we've had people with a positive cascade test and an, um, close to normal cholesterol, and that can take a bit more um, thinking and talking to the um, specialists about, well, we, do we think this is the right variant in the family? But they're really um, unusual circumstances. And by far and large, the, the genetic test is really helpful and, and consistent with the, the clinical diagnosis of FH in the family. Um, so in terms of consent, there's no the, the big tricky things about predicting a disease that doesn't exist yet. Say for example, a, a risk of dementia or a risk of cancer that the person doesn't have today but might one day develop in the future. Um, that's not in the context for FH. It's something that we can treat right here, right now, and that someone can have a diagnosis on clinical signs and and tests regardless of the genetic test. Um, so that's what makes the consent um, really um, not too dissimilar to other medical tests that, that um, physicians would consent for or, or local doctors, GPs would consent for. Catherine, the latest guidance also recommends that a protein called lipoprotein little a be measured in all people with FH at least once for risk stratification. Can you tell us a bit more about this? So lipoprotein little a um, is yeah, another cholesterol particle in the blood. It's basically entirely determined by the genes we inherit. It's not that impacted by diet or many medications. Um, so it's um, decided by genes we inherit from both parents, and it's a, it's a bit of a mixture. So it sometimes looks to follow a dominant pattern, and we kind of treat it a bit like a dominant pattern like FH, where if, if a parent has um, high LP little a, then we think there's, there's a risk for all children. Um, but the risk is not exactly 50-50 like with FH. Um, with FH, if a parent has FH, then we say the children either inherit it or they don't. Um, but LB little a is decided by a, a mix of factors in, the, in a gene from um, both parents. Um, and we find that in the family, if there is someone with a very high level, the chances are for the kids of having a high level is higher. Um, but it's not as... 
it's not as uh, clear and there's not a specific genetic test that helps us. Just doing the blood level of lipoprotein little a is the most informative. You don't have to sequence the gene. It doesn't give you any extra information than the blood level of the lipoprotein little a. And I should probably add that um, uh, it does appear to be an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Uh, it's actually constituted as a, an LDL particle with an extra protein attached uh, to the surface. That protein sort of sticks out and it's highly glycosylated, so it's probably sticky, likely to stick in the artery wall more, more easily. It's got homology with plasminogen, therefore it opposes uh, the breakdown of, of clot and therefore is possibly prothrombotic. Uh, it it uh, mediates the inclusion of oxidized phospholipid into the LDL or the particle as a whole, and that's probably toxic to the, um, to the artery wall. And for all of these reasons, it is an independent risk factor. Uh, we have probably overlooked it for uh, the 30 years that we've known about it because we have not had effective treatments those effective treatments are starting to develop and I think they will initially be directed towards people who've got definite coronary disease. I think it will largely be used for secondary prevention in the initial stages. Uh, and uh, it, indeed, it's, it's, its effects are so substantial that it is also emerging as a, a major risk factor for progression of aortic stenosis. Uh, so it, it, there are a, a number of forms of pathology where... Uh, uh, intervention might be necessary. We should also maybe apologise for some of the terminology here because um, people will be familiar with the main protein in HDL cholesterol, which is called apolipoprotein A1, where a capital A is used. Uh, it wasn't a very good choice, but this other entity is called lipoprotein little a, where it's a lowercase a, but two are completely unrelated and it's very important when ordering a test make sure you get the, uh, the case right. Um, the, it would be unfortunate to pay $50 or so, which is what the test costs because it's not on MBS, uh, for uh, the wrong entity. I think it's absolutely vital to, to re-emphasize Catherine's point that the genetic test does not rule out the diagnosis if a variant is not detected there is around about a 20% uh, prevalence of um, negative results in patients who have definite clinical FH. And so it is, it is not able to provide a rule out um, uh, conclusion to, to the testing process. And David, what other updates should clinicians be aware about in terms of risk stratification? I wanted to maybe just strike out in a slightly different uh, direction, if I could, for a minute, Sonali, and maybe say a little bit about um, testing in the context of absolute risk, because uh, at the moment we're encouraged to um, think about testing patients uh, and, uh, and considering all the risk factors together and therefore considering their cholesterol in the context of absolute risk. And that, of course, is based on evidence. And that evidence accumulates for patients over age 30, over age 45. And so there's very little encouragement for testing anyone for cardiac risk factors in general and uh, cholesterol levels in particular at age less than 45. And so it's very, very important to point out that absolute risk calculations are null and void in the setting of familial hypercholesterolemia. 
the, the condition has virtually doubled the cholesterol level from birth and uh, the levels are, uh, and therefore the level of risk is, is uh, uh, already in the very high risk category and is already at a level where the identified risk factor should be treated. Uh, and I think that's important so that we make the appropriate exceptions and go ahead with testing of, children, uh, of people at age less than 45 if there is the appropriate family history of coronary disease or the very elevated cholesterol levels by some other uh, criteria. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, we are very sympathetic to the concept of doing the appropriate tests in children a simple uh, lipid profile to start with in children. We particularly engage with uh, the issue of detecting FH in children from about age 10 onwards. And it is world's best practice to offer treatment, uh, aiming for uh, a, 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 um, a gentle but a, an effective uh, lowering of cholesterol from about age 10 onwards. However, treatment adherence is such an important issue that uh, individual patients should be managed with very close attention to um, uh, their particular preferences as far as uh, pharmacological treatment is concerned. And so David, we've spoken a lot about early detection through cascade screening, but this update also includes recommendations based on a lot of new evidence coming out on the safety and efficacy of pharmacotherapy in children, as well as extensive updates on new therapies. What should clinicians take note of here? World's best practice, allows for the treatment of children with pharmacological treatment from around about age 10 onwards. Um, It's, I think, pretty conclusively proven that there is no adverse effect on growth attainment or sex hormone levels or any aspect of of growth that might might be considered uh, in uh, in children and adolescents. Uh, There are formulations of routine treatment, namely the statins, which are proven safe and effective for for paediatric population. Um, And so consideration of statin treatment from an early age is uh, is recommended. Um, Ideally, we would be looking towards achieving around about a 50% reduction in LDL cholesterol levels. There are treatment targets, for instance, for primary prevention, getting down to LDL of 2.6 millimoles per litre. But um, in the FH um, context, where it's often the only risk factor and uh, we're starting from a very high LDL, I think sometimes the 50% reduction is a more realistic one to pursue. Having said that, I think the issue of lifelong treatment adherence is so important that my personal practice is to make, be willing to make concessions uh, if in the process uh, we increase the chances of uh, patients sticking with their medication in a confident fashion uh, uh, for uh, the rest of their lives. Um, so first-line treatment is with the statins. Uh, very well-established second-line treatment is now with azetamide. Uh, and the two in combination, I think, can achieve anything up towards around about a 67% reduction in LDL cholesterol, which is usually completely sufficient. However, uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, there is still a large number of patients who are not achieving target levels on maximally tolerated treatment. And 
it's in that situation that the PCSK9 inhibitors are strongly indicated. I think a PCSK9 inhibitor on its own is about as powerful as uh, those previously mentioned first and second line treatments um, uh, taken together. Uh, however, of course, the PCSK9 inhibitor should always be an add-on therapy with continuation of the, uh, of the uh, previously effective medications uh, to maximize the overall response. It's the PCSK9 inhibitors, which would be the only treatments amongst those which would lower lipoprotein little a. Um, I think people are probably familiar with the dosage regime now, which tends to be subcutaneous injection every fortnight. I think that's a more efficient uh, form of treatment than the uh, larger volume injection every month. Uh, and it would seem to therefore maybe more, more cost efficient as well. Um, and and uh, I think there will be further evolution with these PCSK9 inhibitors towards a decreased dosing frequency using a slightly different technology, uh, maybe even eventually leading to six monthly dosing rather than fortnightly dosing. Uh, there are further um, biological treatments beyond PCSK9 inhibitors for the very serious cases known as homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. Previously, they've needed to be treated by apheresis um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see the degree to which apheresis can be scaled out if uh, these other effective treatments become available. But the combination of statin, azetamide and PCSK9 inhibitor at effective dose really has the capacity to lower LDL cholesterol by 90% in heterozygous FH. And uh, it, there would be very few cases in which that was not sufficient to achieve ideal levels. The final point being, and less of an issue in terms of familial hypercholesterolemia, but sometimes these very powerful agents can achieve extremely low levels of LDL cholesterol level, very important in secondary prevention, but it's uh, worth reinforcing that uh, the safety of those LDL cholesterol levels is well established in the short to medium term, uh, I think is expected to be preserved in the longer term, certainly um, a good evidence that um, uh, even the very low levels on treatment can be uh, safe and uh, desirable. Thanks, David, and thanks, Catherine, for sharing those insights. And Ari, just finally to you, your thoughts on how this latest guidance will make a difference in FH and those families with the condition. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, we're going to need to get to an age where the computer at the entrance to the hospital puts up an alert message saying, you know, this 41-year-old man who's had a heart attack with no other risk factors, let's put our thinking cap on. This might be FH. Let's not only look after them and make sure they're healthy and go home safely, let's follow them up, let's diagnose it, and then let's save their children from having the same fate. And, you know, it's not so long ago that people that are 36 having heart attacks are just sent home because they're safe and they've recovered from their heart attack. But that second step of going, okay, how do we prevent this in the future is not necessarily always done. And unless the community is as aware of, you know, the importance of heart health as much as they're aware of cancer, you know, they're not going to be able to advocate for themselves and say, hey, you know, this is really unusual. This has happened to, you know, three generations of men and women in my family. 
I want to do something about this. But unless they're aware of that, they can't advocate for themselves. Another point that I think that is worth pointing out is that the normal things that as a community that we use to diagnose FH cannot be used effectively in children because the child is in a state whereby they're at risk. They are the ones developing the early atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease that then impacts them as an adult, but they don't have the cutaneous signs, the signs on their skin saying, I have this condition. So to another person who's not, you know, fully in depth aware of these conditions, they'll go, oh, the child looks healthy. The child looks well, the child's normal, but they're going on throughout their childhood in this at risk phase when they're developing the things that are going to affect them as an adult. And we see heart attacks as young as teenagers. So, and yes, it's a rare occurrence, but unless we're aware that childhood is the time to really make a positive impact on these kids' lives, then we're already too late. I think that the latest guidance is really practical and um, uh, there's also summary documents that are geared towards uh, improving uh, diagnosis and recognition as well as screening and management. And I want people to be more aware of this condition, have greater understanding and to change the way that we manage this condition in Australia. Dr Ari Horton, thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks again to Associate Professor David Sullivan and Catherine Spinks. We've posted links to the full FH guidance and summary documents, which are available for you to download. From the Olympic, I'm Sonali Silva. Thank you so much for joining us and I hope you join me on the next podcast.